Hello, you are listening to Germantown Community Radio, WRGU 92.9 FM. Welcome to the Jumpstart Philly Real Estate Radio Show, a weekly radio program that spotlights positive real estate development and neighborhood revitalization throughout Philadelphia. I'm your host, Derek Hengemill. Jumpstart Philly is a unique community development program that trains, mentors, networks, and provides funding to aspiring real estate developers in seven different Philadelphia neighborhoods, including Germantown, where the program was founded. Jumpstart believes that you can do well by doing good and focuses on removing neighborhood blight, scattered site rehab, creating a healthy mix of affordable and market rate housing, and avoiding gentrification through slow, steady growth and keeping wealth local. Interviews are conducted during Jumpstart Germantown's weekly Jumpinar series on Monday nights at 7 p.m., which are held via Zoom webinar. For more information about these events, you can check out the events page at jumpstartgermantown.com. This week, Ken and I are speaking with economist and Ph.D. Kevin Gillen from Drexel University's Lindy Institute for Urban Innovation about current housing market trends and how jumpstarters can best utilize this market data and research to make informed decisions when evaluating deals. I hope you enjoy the conversation and be sure to check out the podcast version of this program at jumpstartgermantown.com media. Well, thank you very much for having me, and thanks for Ken for putting this together, and of course, thanks to Derek for handling uh, handling all the technical aspects uh, of putting this. And it's a real honor to be here. Uh, everyone knows about Jumpstart Germantown. It's an exciting program. Uh, I think it's a very timely program given the prevailing uh, you know political situation in the country and in the city right now. And uh, to be able to you know, in any way help contribute to it or support it is uh, you know is really my honor uh, to do. And uh, so thank you very much for for having me. Yeah, awesome, it's our pleasure. And I sort of also mentioned, like like you said, Ken is also on the call, so he'll be chiming in uh, with any follow-up questions or, or topics he's, he's particularly curious about. Um, so, so thanks to Ken for joining us tonight. Um, so uh, I, I don't want to start with the questions, so I want to let you first maybe describe a little bit about the work you do, and, and maybe you can talk about what, what you do at Drexel and, and for the uh, Institute for Urban Innovation. Sure. Well, the Lindy Institute uh, is, was founded and is funded by the, the Lindy Group, which you may know, uh, they're major apartment owners and landlords around the area. Even here in the Mount area, you'll see signs that say Lindy up front. So they're they're our sponsors, and uh, the uh, Institute for Urban Innovation was founded by them uh, at the behest and direction and leadership of President Fry, our current president. Uh, when he became president of Drexel, he wanted to make Drexel, as he put it, the most civically engaged university in the country. Uh, he didn't want Drexel to just be an ivory tower that turned out, you know, graduates and research papers. Uh, he wanted Drexel to be actively engaged in the city and in the region uh, and transforming it in, the, in a positive and constructive way. So Lindy is sort of, I guess, maybe you would describe it as sort of the think tank behind Drexel's initiative to you know, help uh, continue Philadelphia's revitalization and make sure that revitalization happens uh, you know, in a balanced, uh, you know, equitable way that benefits everyone, not just certain select groups or, or neighborhoods. So we produce a lot of the research, to, you know, analyzing the, the, the city's landscape and many of the policies affecting uh, real estate development in the city and the fiscal health of the city. So the main, I guess my bread and butter and the main thing I'm known for is every quarter I produce a housing report on the state of Philadelphia and a separate report on the state of the region as well as the condo market. So we, we get basically every deeded title transfer recorded by the city, which is basically a set of legal documents uh, that you have to fill out. As you guys know, anytime property changes hands, title changes hands, right? So I basically get all those title changes. And then I merge them with the Office of Property Assessments database 
to get the characteristics of each property that changed hands. So it's square footage and when it was built and if it's commercial, residential, et cetera. Uh, and then I produced basically, I, I just subset out all single family residences from that. And then I subset out just arm's length transactions of those single family residences. So with all the market price, the prices that are recorded reflect actual market values. So, you know, we don't have interfamily transfers and sheriff sales and blanket sales, things like that. And then I produce a report, which is very visual in nature. Uh, and it has a price index of housing values for the city and then separate price indices for each neighborhood in the city. So I like to describe it as like a Dow Jones index for the value of housing in Philadelphia. The actual level of the index doesn't mean anything, but its percent change over time reflects the average change in house values, uh, either at the citywide level or at the neighborhood or submarket level. And the indices go all the way back to 1980. I have sales data, comprehensive sales data going back that far. So you can really see if I, if I normally I do a slideshow, you can really see the cyclicality of the housing market and how prices are changing over time. And then I have some additional slides in the report showing the number of home sales over time, number of million dollar sales. I have maps uh, color coding each sale by the price per square foot. Uh, so you can see sort of where you know, the hot areas are versus the cooler areas. Uh, then we have some other market metrics like inventories and average days on market and, and things like that. And along with that visual slide deck, I usually write up a one pager of just sort of bullet points highlighting what's, what happened this quarter, why it matters and you know, what we should keep an eye on going forward. And, and then on top of that, we produce other policy oriented reports, basically analyzing changes in, in city policy that would affect the real estate market. Uh, one thing that we published very extensively on is the tenure tax abatement. I assume you and your team know all about that. I know Ken does. Uh, as you know, that's, there's, uh, that's for over 10 years now, it seems every year that's come under fire as being viewed as sort of a generous giveaway uh, to developers. Uh, you know, we've tried to point out that no, you know, that debatement makes a lot of development happen that wouldn't happen otherwise. You know, it's even the, the type of projects you do where it may not be new construction, it's actual investments or improvements to existing properties or conversions of existing properties to, to residential use. So uh, analyzing the impact of those changes and they'll, they'll be taking effect at the end of this year when the calendar year rolls over uh, is, is an issue we've been in, involved in as well as a lot of others like should the city reassess uh, you know, uh, zoning policy for the city and things like that. So I don't want to go on too long about this because I know you want to get to what's going on in the market, but that's what we do. Yeah, sure. It sounds like in, in equal parts, you know, you have a, a lot of data to manage and a lot of stuff to organize, but it, it, also a big part of your work is communicating that to the public and, and, and making the data that you, you spend so much time on like readily accessible for people, right? Yes, well, we try our best. Cool. cool, and that's what we're doing tonight. So, so and uh, the reports, all oh, the way, all those reports are on our webpage. They're free for download. You don't have to register. Uh, so, if you just do a search on Lindy Housing Report, um, the first link that comes up will be the most recent one. Okay, yeah, great. And I'll be sure to include that in the chat if I have a second tonight, and I'll include it in a follow-up email in the morning. Um, so, yeah, the, the first question I have for you, and we're going to start real broad here, and 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 take a, a wide look at this. Um, what trends are you seeing in the national housing market? Um, I want to start there and then we'll, we'll slowly narrow in our, our viewpoint. But what, what are you seeing in the United States as a whole as to what's going on with the housing uh, market? Right now, both the national and local housing markets are probably the hottest they've been in 15 years during the peak years of the housing bubble. I'm sure Ken remembers those years in 05, 06. Um, and there's good and bad to that. So what do I mean by it's hot? I'm basically going to use two, three metrics there. One, house prices, they're up dramatically, uh, up well above their average rate of appreciation. Home sales are up, the actual churning in the market, home sales transactions activity. And then lastly, building activity, the number of uh, projects that are breaking ground, the number of projects that are getting approved, uh, the number of zoning variances that are being issued. Uh, so it's not just home buyers and sellers uh, and investors that are bullish on the market. It's also developers and builders as well. 
to give you some actual numbers, <clears throat> historically speaking, uh, the average rate of house price appreciation in the United States is about five to six percent per year. So, in other words, if you just threw a dart at the map of the United States, bought that house, sat on it for a year, on average, you'd be up about <clears throat> five to six percent a year later. Okay, that's the return. By contrast, you know, T-bills return two to three percent per year. The stock market returns usually between eight and nine percent per year. So, the average home is somewhere between a treasury bond and uh, you know the, a portfolio of you know a well diversified portfolio of U.S. stocks. Right now. U.S. house prices are about 12% on the year, okay? So historically, they appreciated 5.5%. Now they're up more by a little more than 12%, so more than double their rate of appreciation. Uh, so if you're a homeowner, that sounds great. You're, you're getting a great return on your investment. Uh, but don't forget that housing is not just an investment. It's also what we call a consumption good. You use it. You live there. You spend time there. You enjoy yourself there. So the more expensive a consumption good is, the more of your money you're spending on that than you would on other things. So it basically it eats up a lot more of your income than it would otherwise. That's the downside to rapidly appreciating house prices. Uh, the other issue is that if you want, if house prices are growing rapidly, you want them to be growing for the right reasons. So it's, you know, it's, it's basic asset finance theory. You know, when pr prices need to be in line with their fundamentals, right? So if the price of a stock is way out of whack with the actual earnings stream of a company, that price is going to come down. Same thing for the price of a bond. If it's way out of line with the stream of uh, coupon payments, it's going to come down. It's overpriced. Well, same thing with housing. When housing its way out is rising much more rapidly than incomes or job growth uh, or rent growth or household formation, things like that, that means that you know housing is, is overpriced. And either it's going to go through a correction or it's going to remain at a higher level of unaffordability. So that means fewer people will become homeowners or they'll become homeowners until later in life. And when they do become a homeowner, they're going to spend a much higher percent of their annual income on housing than they would otherwise, which lowers their standard of life because it's less money to spend on, you know, whatever it is you like to do, go on vacations, buy clothes, go out to eat, you know, go shopping, pick your, pick your activity for your discretionary income. Mm -hmm. So neither of those things are good. Uh, you know, I, I was in grad school during the housing bubble years and I remember the collapse and, you know, the, the, the recession lasted quite a long time. It was a good four years before we really started to recover. We, you know, the bubble burst in 08 and house prices here in Philadelphia didn't hit bottom until 2012. And they've been growing ever since. Uh, four years of falling house prices is a hard four years to get through, if you, especially if you're young, uh, your business is relatively new, you don't have deep pockets or capital reserves, because when house prices are falling, demand dries up. Normally, in economics 101 is you know, when, some, when the price of something drops, demand, you know, people will buy more of it because it's now cheaper. That's not how it works with prices. Basically, people don't want to catch a falling knife. If house prices are falling, they want to wait until they stabilize before they buy a house because they don't want to get caught underwater on a house, which a lot of people did, where they end up owing more in mortgage payments than the house is worth. Or uh, they don't want to you know, buy a house that's declining in value. They figure, why should I buy now? They're sliding. They, you know, they tend to slide for a long period of time before they hit bottom. Let's wait till they hit bottom before I buy, and then I'll buy you know, the best price that I can. So uh, you know, a significant downward correction in house prices the last several years uh, would be challenging both, uh, both nationally as well as locally, uh, and certainly for almost everyone in the industry. Gotcha. And it's interesting to, that you make that comparison to the, the, to the way a stock works where, you know, if the, the company's earnings is in line with the, the growth of the stock, that's a really good thing. That's healthy. I can't imagine that, that, uh, you know, home buyers incomes has increased over the past year at the same rate that, that sales prices have, has they? <laughs> no, no, they have not. I mean, you know, we, we luckily job growth has rebounded significantly since the pandemic from a year ago, but income growth is not up dramatically. So that's, that's very disconcerting. Now, you might wonder, well, why have house prices gone up? Uh, here's why. 
Uh, there's basically three legs to that stool. The first is record low interest rates. Okay, financing is cheap right now. Uh, and especially when you get into a downturn like we did last spring, uh, when the stock market is down and interest rates are low, well, where can you put your money? You're not going to put it in bonds because they're not returning anything. Interest rates are zero. If the stock market's declining, you don't want to buy that for the same reason you don't want to buy a house declining value. So if it's not debt, it's not equity, what other asset categories are there? Well, there's real estate. So a lot of money flowed into real estate. That's what sort of led us out of the, one of the things that led us out of the recession. The other thing that's driving up house prices uh, is a short-term cyclical effect as opposed to a long-term structural effect, and that's inventories. So inventories are the total number of homes actually available for purchase right now or listed for sales, not the total stock of homes, just those that are actually being listed or you know, for, for sale right now. Those are incredibly low, all right? Uh, in any given month in Philadelphia, about 1,000 to 2,000 homes change hands. Uh, we're down to a couple hundred a month, all right? Uh, and it's not because the demand is out there. So the demand is out there. It's the supply is low. Uh, right in a balanced market, you typically have what we call a five to seven month supply of homes. So meaning that, say no one else listed their home from now on, and you just let the current inventory of homes be burn, burn through that current inventory given the current pace of sales. In a balanced market, you should typically have a five to seven month supply of homes for sale, okay? You wanna know what the month supply of homes for sale right now in Philadelphia stands at? It's 1.5 months, all right? Way below where it should be in a balanced market. So it's a, not just a seller's market, it is a deep, deep seller's market. And it's the deepest seller's market that I've ever even seen, at least statistically. I have this data going back over 20 years and inventories have never been this low. So if no one else listed their home for sale right now, and we burned through that inventory given the incredible hot pace of sales, we'd run out of homes to buy in Philadelphia in just 90 days. I'm sorry, uh, uh, six, close to 45 days, 45 days, okay? Wow. So that's, that low supply is also pushing prices up. And, and buyers and sellers know this, okay? And the buyers are out there, they're looking at homes. Barely do they look at a home, then you know it goes under, it, it, there's 20 offers bid on it. Many of them uh, are over the asking price. And then people's minds start to go sideways and they get crazy. They freak out like, okay, well, I, I better bid high and bid soon if I want this house. I had one <clears throat> realtor here in Mount Airy uh, put a house uh, listed. He had an open house this past weekend on Saturday. It was the first day it was listed for sale. By Sunday morning, he had 29 offers, cash, half of them willing to forego an inspection. Okay. Now, we, you know, we, we, we economists have a technical term for this, right? Remember the phrase irrational exuberance? Uh, that's what it is. So it's not just sort of larger impersonal market forces at work here. You know, we know that people are kind of freaking out and, you know, they, they think that they better bid high on the house and bid as quick as possible and uh, agree to as many relaxed terms of, of purchase as possible to beat out all the other buyers. Well, the other buyers know that too. So they're doing the exact same thing. So you end up with, you know, just people trying to outpace each other. And that is the classic definition of when you get into a bubble, when you just have, you know, people are not behaving rationally. They're not expecting the, the, you know, rents that support that property, the property's value to be rising rapidly, but they just, they just want to get in on it before anyone else does. Mm -hmm. And then, so that's the short-term, it's the second factor, the short-term cyclical factor. The other reason housing is so hot is because of a longer-term structural factor. And that's basically an outcome of the pandemic. So there's been a massive shift in cons consumption in the U.S. economy away from other things and towards housing, all right, as a result of the pandemic. You're not going out to dine anymore. You're not going to any sporting events. You're not going to concerts. You're not going on vacations. We have to fly on planes and stay in hotels with people. Uh, you're not socializing like you used to or going out uh, uh, like that. You're not uh, traveling as much. Uh, you're not going to the gym because the gyms weren't open. 
Uh, you know, you're not you basically you're just not going out, right? So you still have to do something with disposable income. So what are you doing? Well, you're spending it on your house. So there's the shift from work of from offices to homes. That's a big shift, right? So if you're not only if your house is not just a place to live, it's not where you're also working. Well, you want that house to be nicer because you're spending more time there. So you're setting up your home office so it looks professional for the Zoom meetings that you're on. You're making it more comfortable for yourself because you're there. So rather than going to say ball games, you're buying better and nicer furniture and art for your house, right? And people have been fixing up their homes. They've been investing in their homes, uh, improving them because they're spending so much time there. Now, I'd like to say, you know, the house is not longer just a place to live. It's also a place to work, but it's even more than that. One of my favorite quotes is from uh, a senior VP at the National Association of Realtors who said, the house is not just where you live and where you work. It's not just a house and an office. It's now your spa. It's your gym. It's your theater. It's your restaurant. It's where you escape. It's your library. Your backyard is your park. So all the money you used to spend on those other things outside your house, people are now spending in their homes. And that's providing a big boost to, to uh, not only house prices, but investment in housing overall. And that's a longer term factor because no one is predicting that we're going to go back, that everyone's going to back to the traditional way of work uh, with telecommuting and remote working. You know, generally speaking, the only, it's only senior management level jobs and people who really need to be in person will be going returning to class A office space. They'll be consuming more class office space, more square feet per employee. Uh, but lower level employees, people who just work in accounts payable and things like that, or, uh, you know, just, who just process paperwork and bills all day. There's no reason that they, you know, have to occupy space on Market Street West for $35 a square foot. Uh, they can work from home for much less. It saves the company money. And moreover, a lot of people are happy to do that. They have the flexibility of not having to commute every day. Uh, maybe they can take a break to go pick their kid up at school at three o'clock. Uh, they just have a more relaxed uh, environment uh, working from home as well. But the point of that is that that is providing a great deal of support to not just house prices in general, but the housing industry and the housing sector of the U.S. economy uh, more, more generally. Gotcha. So, so if I could just follow up, uh, Kevin, you, you said uh, that housing appreciation is about twice what it normally is, about 12%. How much of that do you attribute to the historically low interest rates versus the other two factors? Have you done any data on... Uh, what, what's, what's causing that or what percentage of each factor? Uh, it's, it's, it's a, I would, if you put it down to my head, I would say 20 to 25%. It's actually the least of the three factors. I mean, it matters. Don't get me wrong. It matters. Uh, but the other ones, I mean, we've never, you know, we've had low interest rates before. We've never had supplies this low and we've never seen such a massive shift in both consumption and investment uh, from traditional retail and office to the housing sector. So those, those I view as much bigger factors. If you're just tuning in, this is a conversation with economist Kevin Gillen from Drexel University's Lindy Institute for Urban Innovation about the current housing market and how jumpstarters can best utilize market trends and research to make informed decisions when evaluating project deals. Thanks for listening to the Jumpstart Philly Real Estate Radio Show on Germantown Community Radio, WRGU 92.9 FM. I hope you're enjoying the discussion. Gotcha. So, so narrowing in a little bit, you know, I, I, I assume all these trends you're speaking about um, affect the, the nation as a whole. How about the, the Northeast and the Philadelphia region specifically? Are they seeing these trends in the same way as the rest of the country? Uh, no, New York is much tougher. So first of all, it's important to differentiate between the cities and the suburbs. Okay, in general, in general, for most of the Northeastern cities, the suburbs have outpaced the cities in terms of the shift. Because, you know, when there's a pandemic going on, 
And on top of that, you know, let's face it, there was the unpleasantness of the social unrest, uh, you know, from last summer. Uh, people don't want to live in a high rise downtown. They want private open space. So a lot of the people that have relocated have done so from the less denser, uh, from the more dense cities uh, to the less dense suburbs. Uh, mainline prices uh, on our main line are up quite dramatically. Uh, and in particular, you know, I speak to realtor groups all the time, just like I do industry groups like, like Jumpstart. And I like speaking to the realtors because they always give you these really good anecdotes of a particular deal they might have brokered. And uh, one guy told me, um, I won't say his name because I don't want to betray any confidence, but let's say uh, he markets himself, his name rhymes with the real estate man, <laughs> um, told me that right now on the main line, if you have a mansion or you know, an estate type home with any type of enclosed outdoor maintained space, you know, swimming pools, alfresco kitchen, tennis court, that is adding as much value to the property uh, as the actual structure itself. Because you know, wealthy people don't want to go to parks, okay? And, and, and it's in a pandemic. So because if you want to spend time outside, if you've got an enclosed private yard that's nicely shaded with tree, that is worth twice as much today as it was in pre-pandemic times. And to give you the anecdote I alluded to, uh, he told me that right now on the main line, if you want to have a swimming pool installed, there's an 18-month waiting list, okay? They can't even break ground until 18 months from now. So in general, the suburbs have done better than the cities because of that. They just people want more space and they want more safety as well, or at least the perception of it. Philadelphia is the exception. Uh, our city has actually done much better than the suburbs in general uh, during or over the course of the past year. Uh, to give you some numbers, uh, city house prices in Philly on average are up almost 13% from a year ago. Uh, these, I mentioned the historic rate of appreciation for a typical U.S. home is about 5 to 6% per year. For Philadelphia, we're 4 to 5% per year. Okay, so uh, just being a city and just having had, a, you know, many of you may not be old enough to remember, but, you know, Decades like the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s weren't particularly kind to Philadelphia. The past 20 years have been good, but uh, for youngins, you think maybe, you know, house, house prices in cities only go up. But believe me, there were decades where they were flat or even went down. So Philly's historic appreciation rate is below the U.S. average. Uh, so, uh, but so 4 to 5% is our historic average. And now we're up nearly 13% from a year ago, three times our historic average. Okay. By contrast, uh, the suburbs, uh, they're at around eight to nine percent, running about eight to nine percent per year. So they're also running above average, but they're not nearly as hot as us. Um, why that is is a very good question. Uh, I think a significant part of it is that we have benefited from an exodus from New York City. Uh, I don't have that you know in my hard data, but I just hear it from the realtors, and I see what parts of the city uh, are you know the real hotspots and there are areas that would attract educated professionals, particularly younger ones, millennials, um, and they're bidding up house prices. So we've had the population influx to support that, that growth in house prices. It hasn't been spread all over the city, uh, but you know it, it has been meaningful. Uh, on net, our population in Philadelphia has lost, we've lost about 5% of our population on net uh, since 2020. Uh, by contrast, New York has lost close to 10% of its population, uh, highly concentrated in Manhattan and Brooklyn. Those are your educated professionals. So it's not just the population loss that hits you, it's that they're taking their incomes and their investments with them, okay? Uh, rich people are what allow cities to run, whether you like it or not, for the very simple reason that wealthy people pay a lot more in taxes than they consume in public services. So they're the ones that subsidize uh, services for relatively lower income peoples and even for middle-class people, you know, the rest of us. So when they move and they vote with their feet, uh, it hits you two ways, not only the loss in population, the spending that they do in the city, but also the taxes uh, that they pay. So, but uh, New York, uh, Philadelphia's done pretty well uh, compared to our suburbs over the course of last year. Now, I am concerned about that rate of house price growth, um, but let me talk about how that is distributed across the landscape of the city. 
So I mentioned there's been a general de-densification of the U.S. population since the pandemic. Uh, when people move, they're generally seeking to move from higher density settings to lower density settings and more green space. And like I said, at least the perception of you know, greater public safety. Um, that pattern is held within the city uh, as well as across the region. So even within Philadelphia, we've seen the biggest gains in the, in the outer neighborhoods and the, s- the smallest gains in the uh, dense neighborhoods in and around Center City. Historically speaking, it's been the opposite. I mean, the story of the past 20 years, if you look at house price appreciation, it's basically Center City and all the zip codes that touch it. The rest of the city has grown, but by, by, by less than that. Past year has completely reversed that trend. Uh, the only zip code in Philadelphia that gained population in 2020 was 19118, which is Chestnut Hill. Every other zip code in the city lost population. Now, not so much here. We only in Mount Area, Germantown, only a oh, pop, net population loss was only like two to three percent. But Center City, uh, you know, Rittenhouse Square, 19103, uh, was like 12 percent. All right. Uh, on top of that, that loss in population in, from our denser areas is reflected in the changes in house prices across the city. So house prices in center city since the pandemic began are only up about three to four percent from a year ago. So they're below their historic average. And that's during a period when house prices across the country are roaring above their average. All right. So center city has struggled over the course of the past year. Uh, Germantown, to give you an explicit example, and check the numbers before I got on the air here. Uh, Germantown's up about the citywide average, about 13 percent from a year ago. All right. Uh, Chestnut Hill, by contrast, is up by like 15 percent. So, you know, areas that are green or leafy where you live in a semi-detached or detached house, especially if you have a private yard, um, that is what people are seeking with with their dollars right now in terms of their location. Yeah, so, so my next question for you was going to be what types of real estate are going up or going down or, or maintaining? Right, so it sounds like stuff that's closer to, to like you said, green trees and, and open spaces and less concentrated areas. Is that in general what's going up and then anything else is, is the opposite? And, and, you know, at least also the perception of a safe neighborhood is where people are spending more time at home now. So, um, you know, they want, they want some places quiet because they're working from home as well. You know, they don't want to hear honking horns or you know, loud music or, or, or anything like that. So at the, if we were going to create a, a pyramid here, ranking least desirable real estate in Philly to most desirable right now, the, at the bottom of that pyramid is center city condos, especially million dollar condos. They've really taken a hit. Uh, because a lot of those millionaires have vacated the city. I don't know if they're going to stay away, um, you know, from uh, what some of them, you know, I, I know the major developers in, in that sector. From what they've told me, these are very affluent households, very older, older households. Many of them are retired or empty nesters. You know, they've got a really nice house at the shore or a condo in Florida. You know, when the pandemic began or the unrest began, uh, they left to go to those places. So they haven't officially moved. Uh, you know, but we're still wanting, you know, what rate they'll come back and, and if they'll come back. But as long as that money stays away, that sector is really taking a hit. I mean, it's not it's not plunging in value. It's just sort of dead right now. I mean, prices are flat. Transactions are down uh, because uh, people are still, like I said, in a holding pattern uh, to see how that sector will before it will stabilize and recover before they jump back into it. And then the next uh, you know layer up from that would be apartments and houses in core center city. Um They've held their value reasonably well over the last year, but they haven't appreciated the same rate as the rest of the city. Like I said, uh, zip code 19103, Rittenhouse Square, uh, zip code 19106, which is Washington Square, uh, they're up only, you know, four to five percent on the year. Uh, you know, at the time when the rest of the city is up by, you know, nearly 13 percent. So they're lagging the rest of the city. Uh, plus, there's been a lot of inventory and apartments that have been built 
uh, in recent years. And so when you have a new supply hitting at a time when demand is contracted, um, you know, that's going to have a cooling effect on prices. So I'm not worried they're going to end up vacant or these projects are going to go under. Uh, but they're, they're just, at the, relatively speaking, not doing as well as the rest of the city. And then you get the neighborhoods adjacent to Center City. Um, you know, again, these used to have a real premium because they were more affordable than core Center City. You know, and I'm thinking, you know, the Graduate Hospitals, Point Breeze, Fishtown, you know, um, Northern Liberties, uh, Brewery Town, University City, places like that, Queen Village, uh, were more affordable than core Center City, uh, but they had a very short commute to Center City. But again, if you had an office job in Center City and you're working from home now, the location premium that was commanded by those neighborhoods has dropped significantly, right? Because if you're not physically commuting to your job, why are you going to pay a premium rent or price to have a short commute to Center City? Mm-hmm. Then we get the, the top of the pyramid are the outer neighborhoods. So Chestnut Hill, Mount Airy, uh, almost all of Northeast Philadelphia. Uh, there, are, there are zip codes in Northeast Philly that are up by nearly 20% from a year ago. It's an affordable home. You get, typically get a large piece of land. It's a detached home because that's generally the only area of the city where you have detached homes. You're not sharing a wall with anyone. And, um, you know, the people have snapped up those properties at relatively affordable prices because Northeast is, you know, working class to middle class. So it's not as pricey as Chestnut Hill or Mount Airy or someplace like that. Um, so uh, that and, you know, so those are the areas that have been doing the most in terms of price appreciation and sales transactions. So, you know, for the past 20 years, proximity and accessibility to Center City is what drove location value and what really drove not just the level of house prices, but their rate of appreciation over time. That's been inverted over the last year. The more space you have and, you know, the more you are selling to someone who's working from home so they couldn't carry and they're not going out to dine because you can't, uh, you know, during a pandemic or at least, you know, there's restricted occupancy, things like that. The accessibility to Center City is just not as important as it used to be, at least right now. Now, the you know, the I think the, ver- the jury is still out on whether that's really a fundamental long-term shift as opposed to a short to intermediate term one, uh, but it's one that I'll be keeping my eye on. So Kevin, you, uh, a lot of what you're talking about is, is geographic, which makes a lot of sense and there's attributes per neighborhood. Um, something that has driven the market, as you know, for the last two decades, but particularly the last decade has been proximity to train stations, right? Yes. We used to, draw a circle around everything on the L or the Broad Street line, and that's where you wanted to buy. And and same thing goes for regional rail, really. Um, You mentioned leafy neighborhoods and and space. Um, Walkability, what other factors should jump starters be looking at when uh, thinking about value or future value of houses? So you mentioned, you were talking about proximity now to amenities and dissonance. So first of all, you mentioned drawing a circle, right? If I can ask a question, um, what is, what was the radius of that circle that you drew? Yeah, good question. I would say if it's train stations, you got to be able to walk there in 10 to 15 minutes. Yeah. So I'll, I'll give you a, a, a magic number from urban economics. In urban settings, the magic distance is a quarter mile, Okay. So there's been studies done about how just how the human body responds to walking and exercising. And they found that people are willing to walk a quarter mile with a high degree of frequency, meaning they'll do it you know, daily or almost daily. People will walk further than that. They just don't want to do it on a daily basis. So we actually have a chart showing the, if the probability of patronizing a specific amenity is very, very high for all households that live within a quarter mile. But then the probability of patronizing drops to, starts to drop at an exponential rate once you get beyond the quarter mile. There's something about our body. We, we just, 
as I, as my, my wife puts it, uh, a quarter mile, I tried to explain this to her using mathematical terms and, you know, she's not an economist and she listened and said, oh, I know what you mean. A quarter mile is a pleasant stroll, but anything beyond that's just a schlep. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that's what it means in urban economics. So wherever your property is, what is everything that's within a quarter mile is what's going to matter most for what's going to drive its locational value. Okay. So the big one is actually parks and green space. If you're walkable to the Wissahickon, that, that is bankable money right there, right now. Okay. Plus the neighborhoods that are walkable to the Wissahickon also tend to be very, very nice ones as well with a very nice housing stock. Uh, not the cheapest neighborhoods, uh, but again, if you have that accessibility, that's really good. But even in areas, you know, if you're walk, if you're in Bluebell, for example, and you can you know walk to Bluebell Park, you know that that is a real uh, amenity right now. And some of the other parts of the you know the Wissahickon uh, Park uh, areas. So that's the big one. Um, the other ones, you know, restaurants and that don't matter as much. Again, people just aren't dining out as much, or they can't, you know, or they're limited capacity. Uh, but there are still essentials that you need. So proximity to groceries and dry cleaning are the two big ones because. No matter how bad the economy is, no matter how bad the pandemic is, you still need food and to get your clothes cleaned, right? So uh, those, those are the two big ones. Uh, train stations matter, but again, not as much. Remember, if you're not commuting to Center City every day, what does that matter to you? Or moreover, if restaurants in Center City are in limited capacity, uh, you, you can't, the theaters aren't open yet, the sporting venues aren't open yet, you know, what, what does the, again, the accessibility to Center City mean as much to you? Uh, because not only are you not going there for work, you're not even going there to play uh, like you used to. So that that has taken a relative hit. Great. Okay, so now uh, we're, time is moving right along here. So maybe we'll go for about ten or fifteen more minutes, and then and then jump into some questions. But I want to bring in, bring the uh, the discussion back to the aspiring developers in our call, and and I want to get get your take on on how you think they can best utilize all this information you provided here um, to make decisions on their next product. You know. Um, for, for a lender or for a financer who, who they're presenting a deal to, you know, they care about now, what is selling now, what, what comps can you find for things that are selling in the past six months? Um, but, but from the developers, you know, perception and what, what sorts of things they need to take in mind to make sure they're going to profit from their project is, is what the future value of things are going to be. So, so I guess my, my question here is, is what can you offer in terms of helping the, the developers in this call really make decisions on their next product, project and be able to use, incorporate that future value idea into their, uh, their deals? Okay. So I assume everyone's learned how to do a pro forma model for a real estate investment, right? So everyone knows what a cap rate is and do a present discount of value, right? So, I mean, you can go on Zillow, uh, download the rent monthly rent history for your zip code, Okay. Um, you can project it over time, look, you know, fit a linear trend through it in Excel, something like that. You know, if the average historic rent appreciation is, you know, one to 2% per year, that you can, that will be your baseline scenario for the next 10 years of your pro forma. Uh, you can look at current prices and price per square foot in your neighborhood. Again, Zillow publishes that. I would imagine many of you have access to the MLS, so you can look at recent sales or even the recent listings in the neighborhood. So look at where prices are relative to rent. So the general rule of thumb is you don't want prices more than three times annual rent, right? So the reason for that is you're, you're supposed to be spending somewhere between 30 and definitely no more than 40% of your annual income on housing. So that includes either your rent or mortgage payment, plus your utility bills, plus any cost of upkeep. If you, you know, if you own the property, you have to maintain it. Uh, occasional investments you have to make in it, repainting it or fixing something, things like that. If you're spending more than 40% of your annual income uh, on housing, uh, that means one, if prices are more than three times rents, that means one of two things. Either prices are out of line with fundamentals and a property is overpriced or a market is a, a properties is overpriced. So there'll be a correction. 
or that's a relatively unaffordable market, uh, you know, for a comparison for sale. So if you're looking to sell the property at that price, but you know, it's more than three times rents in that area, uh, you know, your property is, is overpriced or you're in an area which is just more unaffordable. Now in New York, for example, prices are like, you know, five, six, seven times what incomes and rents are. Yeah, I, I was wondering how can uh, the jump starters and the call and, and the people who are making decisions on projects uh, currently, how can they ensure that they're accurately estimating ARV rent, you know, based on the trends that you've started to discuss tonight? Well, again, the first thing, you know, there is an old saying in real estate, um, you know, you don't make your money when you sell or rent, you make it when you buy, right? So for your acquisition opportunities, again, given that it's a very hot market, I'd be very concerned about overpaying for a property um, because I can tell you that this double digit appreciation cannot continue. And you might end up over leveraged on something before, you know, you even have converted your property or rehabbed it and are putting it back on the market. Moreover, the market might have cooled by the time you've done that. So, uh, you know, again, compare prices to rents. Make sure that the asking price, you know, at bare minimum is not more than three times what rents are in that area. And then, you know, figure in your development costs or conversion costs, construction costs. Uh, and if, you know, that, that on top of your acquisition costs does not result in a price that is more than four times what incomes are in the area or, you know, more than what the cap rate says that should be as a multiple of rents, uh, then, you know, that project is overpriced. You shouldn't do it to begin with. So I'm guessing in most cases, you can't control what your cost of construction is, your cost of development, uh, but you can at least have some control over the acquisition price of, of the actual project. So don't get caught up in the headiness and the irrational exuberance. Uh, I know many of you, you know, Especially if you're new to this, you're eager to do your first project and your first deal. Uh, you know, keep a level head about it. Uh, you know, and, and as, as we when we teach this at Wharton and at Drexel, we tell the students the same things. We know you all want to be, you know, a rock star developer overnight. Um, but start modestly. Don't bite off more than you can chew. You know, do a one to three bedroom project, uh, but do it successfully. Do it quickly. Keep it within budget. Turn it around. Uh, get it leased or sold, and just start to establish a track record for yourself. Okay. Um, I can tell you that there is plenty of private capital out there for real estate. So you don't, you know, once you have a good reputation, you don't need to go to banks anymore. And you, lenders will actually come to you. I, I mean, private investors as well. Uh, you know, once you, you can consistently establish that you can return at least 8% on a project, if not somewhere between 10 to 15% or, or even more. Once you have a track record of giving investors, you know, a 10 to 15% return on their money, You'll never have to ask for a loan again. People will come and beg you to give you their money to do a project because they believe that you've got that, that reputability and that track record uh, to stand on. So start by building that track record now by not being overambitious. Don't overpay. Don't overpromise what the project can do. And definitely don't overspend you know, on the build. Uh, markets go up. Markets go down. Um, to me, people ask, well, what's the best time in the market to do something? To me, there there is no best time. There is no ideal place in the market because there's Pluses and minuses to where you are in the real estate cycle. So right now we're in an up cycle, which is great. So yes, you can sell or rent things at a high rent or price, but you know your acquisition costs are up, your construction costs are up, your land costs are up, right? So that's going to offset. By the same token, when you're in a down market, yeah, you might have to sell or rent at a deflated rent or price. You may have a little more trouble finding a tenant or a buyer. But by the same token, your land co acquisition costs are down because land prices are down. Your construction costs are down because we're generally in a recession or a deflationary period. So uh, it's not, it doesn't really matter where you are in the cycle, in my opinion. You just make sure you know where you, where you are in the cycle so you can strategize accordingly. Okay. All right. Great. 
And, and I think the natural direction that our conversation is going here is, is what Ken referred to as the, the magic question. When is this all going to bottom out? <laughs> you know, what, when, when do you think that will be that moment of reckoning when, when we see something like, like, uh, you know, we're so scared of, of happening actually happens. Um, you know, this, this is the first of our listener questions here. So I think we can jump in with that and then I'll just continue with the, uh, the other one. That's here. Uh, time's up. I got to go. <laughs> I thought that was going to be the case. <laughs> uh, when? Yeah, that's a big one. Okay. So first of all, there's the what before there's the when. So the what I am more confident in predicting than the when. The what is that I know that the, this price appreciation is not sustainable. because It's simply by looking at the factors that drive real estate are not growing at that rate. So I know that we're in an inflationary period right now. And I know that unless I really start to see incomes start to explode as well, and Americans just start getting richer across the board, we can't sustain this rate of house price appreciation. So uh, that means, like I said, either one of two things is going to happen. We're going to have a correction. All right, we'll have a downward period like we did roughly from 2008 to 2012, where there'll be deflation in rents and prices in the market. And by the way, that, like I said, from, my, from the previous answer, that's a great time to be planning your next acquisition, okay? Because by the time you'll buy cheap and by the time your project is done, the market could be in the recovery phase, which is where you want to be. But anyway, so one of two things will get happen. It will have a downward correction um, and, or we just, you know, house prices sort of plateau out and they just wait for incomes, you know, income growth and household formation and job growth to catch up. So you'll just have sort of a flat market for a while. So those are the two things I think will happen. That's the what. Now the when, that's a tough because the thing is real estate markets are really unique compared to other asset markets because as I alluded to earlier, real estate, especially housing, is not just an investment good or asset. It's also a consumption good, okay? No one buys a stock or a bond just for the excitement of buying a stock or a bond. You know, most investors are very clear-eyed on what they think the earnings, you know, earnings stream will be from a company over their holding period or what they think the bond payments will be, and they know what interest rates are. So they can, they can derive a fair price in a fairly rational, unemotional way. That's not the case for housing. You know, people, you, we can project rents out and cap rates out and interest rates out and construction costs all we want. But at the end of the day, you know, people buy or rent a house because of very emotional, personal factors. Uh, you know, some people like this type of countertop. Other people's like a, another type of countertop. Some people like big open spaces. Other people would like a series of private rooms. Uh, some people like, uh, you know, this location over that location uh, because they want to be near lots of amenities. Other people want a quiet location far removed from things. You can't predict what the next prospect that walks through your property is going to be into or what they like. So, you know, once you have human emotion and personal idiosyncratic preferences factored into the equation, that really clouds things. So that makes the win very, very difficult. Uh, I you know right now I know there's a, a psychology out there among buyers that is excessively optimistic, uh, sometimes panicky. Uh, that has me worried. Um, so let's so we'll, to answer the when question, that's that's why it's hard to answer the when. But let's see if we can give you some numbers. So let's look at what history can tell us. So real estate cycles, like most asset cycles, tend to have a much longer boom period, followed by a relatively short but severe contractionary period. So just like the stock market, real estate upcycles tend to be measured between five to 10 years, but contractionary phases tend to be shorter in duration, but very, very severe. So it could take house prices, you know, five to 10 years, closer to 10 actually, uh, say to go up by, you know, pick a number, 50%. But then they say they have to correct. So that would be, you know, uh, 50, they go up by uh, 50% uh, over 10 years. So then we're looking at, you know, 5% per year, right? Um, let, me, let me do the math real quick. 
uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. To, yeah. So say they're going up between 10 to 15% per year, something like that. Okay. Close to over 10 years. The correction will be severe. They'll go down by more than that. And they'll collapse by say 20% per year, but they'll do so in the, in the space of a relatively short time. So real estate down cycles in duration tend to be measured uh, in typically a duration of two to four years. Okay. So this expansionary cycle began in 2012. So it's 2011. So that tells me we're in year nine of the current expansionary cycle. Uh, so we're near the typical length, the maximum length of a typical up cycle. Like I said, 10, 10 years tends to be the max, all right? So that tells us we're, we're much closer to the peak than we were from the trough, all right? So if I was just going to go by what history has to tell us and sort of a law of averages, I would expect mean reversion of the market within the next year to two, all right? Just based upon historical patterns in, in housing prices. Uh, this down cycle, however, I would expect to be more mild than the previous one because we haven't had the, the galloping house price appreciation only been occurring for about a year. Okay. Uh, in the two thousands, we had double digit price appreciation for four to five years. So we were really overvalued on top of that during the last cycle, we were also really over leveraged as I'm sure Ken can confirm, uh, real estate financing, mortgage financing was much more readily available during the last cycle than during the current one. I mean, remember the whole subprime loans and all that, you know, if you had a pulse and just a modest credit score, you could get a mortgage during the last cycle. And a lot of people were, and they were overpaying and they were overleveraging themselves. And so even a modest correction of house prices put them underwater. Uh, but when you had on top of that, all the speculative flipping that was occurring during the last cycle, uh, you know, we really took a hit. I mean, that was a severe downturn in house prices. Here in Philadelphia, house prices fell about 23% from peak to trough from 2008 to 2012. I don't think we're overvalued by 23%. I think we're overvalued somewhere between five and 10%. So if you're going to put a gun to my head, um, expect a downturn in 12 to 24 months. And uh, if house prices keep going as they are, expect a correction between, uh, I would say eight to 12%. So have me back in a year and, and see how I did. We, we will definitely do that, Kevin. That concludes my conversation with economist and PhD Kevin Gillen from Drexel University's Lindy Institute for Urban Innovation. We talked about current housing market trends and how jumpstarters can best utilize this market data and research to make informed decisions when evaluating project deals. Next week, I'll be speaking with Jumpstart Germantown mentor and experienced home inspector Bob Worth to discuss all you need to know about property walkthroughs and how to complete an effective home inspection for a potential project. The interviews on this program are recorded during Jumpstart Germantown's weekly Jumpinar series, which takes place via Zoom webinar every Monday night at 7 p.m. If you'd like to participate in the live Q&A with our guest, be sure to head to jumpstartgermantown.com events and register for next week's Jumpinar. And if you're interested in starting a Jumpstart program in your own community, you can visit gojumpstart.org and see our how-to guide and open source training workbook. Thank you so much for listening to the Jumpstart Philly Real Estate Radio Show on Germantown Community Radio, WRGU 92.9 FM. And be sure to tune in next week.